0: Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu.
1: Um, as Aaron mentioned, I am also a novelist. And what doesn't go into the nonfiction makes its way into the fiction, which is actually how yeah, I started doing that. And not many people, I find out, write fiction and nonfiction. This is a nonfiction book. And the secret is this. If you're writing non-fiction, wake up early in the morning and drink lots of strong coffee. If you're writing fiction, it's late at night with lots of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this book because I was angry. I was angry. Mm, yes, Good one. I, I um, Good one. like some of you, I have lost friends and colleagues in Afghanistan and Iraq. I, as a taxpayer, Uh, I am aghast to see the U.S. blow trillions down the toilet, in my opinion, in those places and other places, and as a vet, it's disturbing to me to see our national image tarnished by low-level foes. And I wanted to know what's the problem. Because we have the very best military. We have the best troops, the best training, the best technology, most money we, we have our Department of Defense has more money than the next eight biggest militaries in the world combined combined so what 's the problem? Why are we struggling in wars and it 's not just this decade, but going the last time we won a war decisively was one thousand nine hundred and forty five and the world ran in vacuum tubes. so what is going on and that 's the central puzzle. Of this book, now sort of the bottom line up front is this: Warfare has changed, but we have not. Our enemies and adversaries grasp this and exploit it, but we are still mired in what we always. You've heard this, act, this saying that generals always like the last war, yes, uh, or actually, what really it means is generals always like the last successful war. This truism happens to be true, and what this means for us is World War II, is conventional warfare, which I'll come back to. Now, it's hard for a victorious nation to change its way of war. Why should it? But we must. (coughs) As a case study in this, let's go back 100 years in the Wayback Machine. 100 years ago is an example of why it's hard for victorious nations like ours to change the way they fight war. One hundred years ago, we had this gentleman here, Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell was an American aviator in World War I. He saw the future, and that future was air power. And when he came back to the United States of America, he told everybody as one star, the future is air power, the future is air power. And of course, our military was like, no, it's going to be straight leg infantry, it's going to be trench warfare, it's going to be all these things, it's going to be static line defense. And so the US and you know, France thought like the future of war is what they just recovered from. And so they both imagined a line, right? Which is the ultimate static line defense. Billy Mitchell said, No, you're wrong. An airplane can sink a battleship, which was crazy talk in that day, in the early 2020s, because back in the 1920s, an airplane was little more than a motorized kite in the era of a super dreadnought. He said, no, I'll prove it to you. So he convinced the Navy to drag out some uh, captured German battleships in the Chesapeake and blew them up from the air, from an airplane. Rather than this being definitive, it, it stirred a huge debate that spilled over to the public about, well, is this you know realistic? You have a stationary target. You've got an airplane. It's They got lucky shots. And so perhaps to keep... Mitchell out of trouble, General Pershing sent him on an inspection cruise at the Pacific to get him out of the out of Washington, DC. And you know, just like you know, it's like, Billy, just get out of town, just cool it, just shut up, be quiet, you're just gonna ruin your career. So Mitchell t- spends a year around the Pacific. He comes back with like a three 300- to four hundred-page report. In this report, he said, And forgive the TV here, he said, in the future, Japan will launch a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor at 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday by airplane. He said this in 1924. Now, what do you think the U.S. military did with General Mitchell? They court-martialed him. Sometimes it's easier to court-martial somebody than listen to a new way of war. And it wasn't just any court-martial. This was done at Fort Leslie McNair, not very far from here. And it was hugely public and hugely in the media and hugely Kardashian. It was a freak show. And they defrocked him. And the old man Spent the last couple of years of his life going around the country talking to anybody who'd listen to him about the future of air power. This did not dissuade him, and then he died in Milwaukee, where he's buried today. And so then this happens: Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. military said it was caught completely off guard, completely by surprise, which is not true. Now, in the way, what it shows you is that. True prophets of war, most prophets of war are fake. And looking around town, the fake takes this town, they say the future of war looks like World War II with better technology. They're no different than the Americans, the English, and the French after World War I, looking backwards instead of forwards. But they did, the U.S. military did apologize in its way, they named a bomber after him. The B twenty-five Mitchell bomber, the only World War II bomber that we've made that was named after a person. So, this the moral of the story is this: is that we may be going through a Billy Mitchell moment today. We are a victorious nation. Warfare has changed, yet we refuse to change the way we fight wars. This is important because even an undefeated military can lose. Rome found itself the Eternal City until four hundred and ten A.D was sacked by Alaric and barbarians, and was sacked several more times that century. So when I asked you who could sack us today, I'm not saying we're gonna be sacked by Visigoths, but if we, what of our biggest threats today? We could spend all afternoon, which knots, will not, on answering this question. You could say China, Russia, as certainly the new national defense strategy suggests, Iran, ISIS 3.0, Um, you could do narcos, you could do Venezuela, you could do genocide, you could do North Korea. We we could talk about these, and these are all very serious and very bad threats to our country (coughs) today. But as bad as these threats are, they are not the worst. They are not the worst. The worst is systemic. That's feeding them. Something that I call durable disorder. Durable disorder. And what durable disorder is, is it's the world order as the Westphalian world order retreats and the nation states retreat. And that seems to be, a lot of data showing that's the case in the last 25 years. Durable disorder is what's left in the wake. Now, this is not pure anarchy. It's not the sky is fine, we need to invest in more sky. It is rather, it's rather a system of uh, like overlapping authorities, is conflicts that don't end, forever wars, persistent conflicts, entropy, that can contain but not solve problems, right? Durable disorder is systemic, and mostly it is not new. It is not new. So durable disorder is the world, if you look at the Westphalian order, it's only about a couple hundred years old. What What preceded it was a form of durable disorder it is the world that Machiavelli was writing about. It is the world of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Most of human history is disorderly. The Italian Wars were fought by anybody who was rich enough who could hire mercenaries, did so. And this created perpetual war because A, mercenaries didn't want to work themselves out of, a, out of a job, and B, Anybody who was rich enough could fight a war for any reason they wanted. It lowered the, the barriers of conflict. We have any questions? Well, hold on a 2nd done by Great, Well, so that's in the new rules of war. I have, um, I have 10 new rules, which we'll get to at the end. Rule number two <laughs> is technology won't save us. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Good? Yeah, you think like? this all right, right? We'll try this. Okay, let's go backwards here. over this a too quickly. Remember, we won for World War II without PowerPoint. I know, right? <laughs> all right, let's like... try right, this. Okay, we'll be back at the podium. All right, the Italian Wars, right? Persistent, never ending conflict. <clears throat> Anybody who could afford the means of working wager for any reason they wanted to. It was a pre Westphalian order. Today, when we look around and look for durable disorder today, half of all peace agreements fail in five years. The majority of states in the world are failing or failed, and increasing. Most states in the world are facing some form of armed conflict. Mercenaries are returning everywhere. It's not just Iraq, Afghanistan, it's everywhere. It's one of the biggest insecurity trends of our century that's not being covered. and (coughs) They are very effective. Um, We're seeing non-state actors who are engaging in warfare uh, creeping into that space. Those who understand the new global environment are exploiting it, like Russia, China, our adversaries. Those who do not are getting exploited. Unfortunately, in my opinion, American foreign policy is taking the Humpty Dumpty approach of trying to put together the so called liberal world order back together. But that, you know, if you're sticking with different metaphors here, that force that has fled the barn. That horse has fled the barn. So we have a new global environment, and that begets a new type of warfare. Just like you have Westphalian warfare, we have we live in a post-Westphalian age or a pre-Westphalian age, look at it, new type of warfare. As you know, our national defense strategy is reorienting us towards big, near-peer threats. These two guys, specifically. <laughs> now they're toasting the United States. (laughs) They're not toasting the United States. Um, Here's the question, if there's going to be a conflict with one of them, or both of them, why does everybody assume it's gonna be a conventional fight? They always do, right? It's gonna be a conventional war, we need more aircraft carriers, more F-35s, all these, you know, we need midway in the South China Sea. That's what we have to prepare for. But it won't. Conventional war is Westphalian way of warfare. We live in a post-Westphalian age New way of warfare. Conventional war is dead. Rule number one of the 10 new rules of war. Conventional war is dead. The evidence for this is pretty overwhelming. In this graph, the red line on the bottom represents interstate wars, uh, what we might call conventional war. Blue on the top is everything else. And this is from 1945 to like 2017. This is the Correlates of War database. There are issues with all databases. That's, we, we can discuss that in Q and A. But the point is this, is that there is nothing more unconventional today than a conventional war. They're very, very rare. And really nobody fights conventionally anymore except for us, including Russia and China. In fact, you can even ask this question. Are we already at war with Russia and or China? And part of their strategy is to keep us the thinking that we're at peace, because we act differently when we're at peace than we're at war. A clever strategy. So what does war look like in this new global environment called Durable Disorder? It's getting sneakier. War is getting sneakier. Let's look at some examples of it. Ukraine and Crimea. Russia had the conventional forces to launch a blitzkrieg into eastern Ukraine and seize Crimea outright. They had, it's un, no question about it. Compared to Ukraine's military, they could have done a great. <coughs> they chose not to do that. They were fighting the new rules of war. We live in a global information age. In a global information age, weapons that give you plausible deniability are more powerful than firepower. Okay, weapons that give you plausible deniability are more powerful than firepower. So where do they use their means? Spetsnaz, special forces, mercenaries like the Wagner Group, uh, these like fake proxy militia, these well, proxy militia like the Donbass battalions, uh, little green men, you all know what little green men are, right? Uh, and lots of propaganda, lots of information warfare. The U.S. and the West was still scratching its head trying to figure out what was going on in the Crimea in 2014. By the time the conventional units showed up, it was a fait accompli. That is the power of the new rules of war. The South China Sea. So China is winning, well, which we have, we think of war, in the new rules of war, war and peace is like pregnancy. You either are or you are not, right? <laughs> Or in another way, it's like a light switch, like the light switch on this wall. It's either on or off. So China has used this very clever strategy because this is a false dichotomy. One of the, rules I, the new rules of war is that there's no such thing as war or peace. There's war and peace. China exploits this false paradigm in our head. They get right in between that space of war and peace and they, they can get away with murder. So in the South China Sea, they go right up to the brink of war for us, right up to where we might respond, and then they stop. But they get to keep or capture. You know, everything they, they capture, they keep. And that is how they're incrementally winning the South China Sea, one island at a time, weakening the resolve of one ally at a time. And they're doing this not with aircraft carrier groups, they're doing it by exploiting our own strategy. They're being Sun Tzu. They're being very Sun Tzu. So one of the Sun Tzu's, his hierarchy of strategies is you must attack the enemy's strategy. That's what they're doing. They're doing it not with firepower, but by doing, you know the, the martial art of Quito, where you use the enemy's weight against them? That's what they're doing to us. Mercenaries. Mercenaries are now in Syria, Iraq, Ukraine, Nigeria, Somalia, Yemen, all over Yemen. They're in Venezuela. We have the Wagner Group in Venezuela, you know, kneecapping... Maduro's army to keep them pro-Maduro. This picture is of ex-Navy SEALs, ex-Green Berets in Yemen, acting as mercenaries for a Middle East monarchy, acting as a kill squad. Mercenaries are not the caricatures we think about. We think of them as Hollywood villains. We think of them as the lone guy in the Congolese jungle with AK-47. That's not what mercenaries are. About a year ago today, 500 mercenaries attacked our very best troops in eastern Syria. We had Delta, Green Bay Special Forces, Rangers, Marines, and they were with um, Kurdish militia defending a gas site in eastern Syria. They were attacked by the Wagner Group. The Wagner Group are are the mercenaries. They work generally for the GRU, which is the Russia's military intelligence, like their DIA, and our best, most elite troops called in our most elite aviation, B-52s, F-15s, AC-130s, Apaches, drones, and it took them four hours to defeat 500 mercenaries. Now, this is not the Virginia National Guard, right, with Hueys. This is Delta with our best aviation against 500 mercenaries. What happens when they have to face 5,000 mercenaries. This was kind of, in my opinion, this was like a Beirut 1983 moment for Russia. Now, alternatively, DOD says we, you know, (coughs) which is true, we killed more Russians that night than we did during the entire Cold War, which is true tactically. Strategically, it looks pretty bad. So in the future, victory goes to the cunning and not the strong. Yet you know, we invest in the strong. I like to say budgets are moral documents because they do not lie. You look at what we're putting our money into, expensive conventional weapons that are high utility of force in a, in a war climate which, which favors cunning and not high utility of force. So here's the issue. Durable disorder is the new environment for a war We're not set up to fight in this environment, our bureaucracy, the way we think, our strategy, our weapons, what we buy, what we train on. It does not recognize this reality, nor does it adapt to it. We are still fighting according to an old set of rules of war and they get frustrated by the result. That is what's going on today. I call this strategic atrophy. We rock at the tactical and operational levels of war. Nobody can defeat the US at the tactical operations level of war. But strategically, we are deeply lagged. We are lagging behind. This is strategic atrophy. We need to improve our strategic IQ. But here's an example. Here's war as we imagine it in the future. Robots. We love, we fetishize technology so we're spending lots of money on prototypes of robots. And I don't know what the theory is here. Maybe like the, you know we have landing craft that go onto the shores of North Korea. Out down goes the ramp and out swarm robots. I don't know. I know they're very expensive. There's this thing that they make by Boston Dynamics called it's a, well I call it a robotic ass. What this thing is, it's a it's a robot that it looks like a, it's supposed to be a mechanical mule with four legs and it's supposed to carry around Special Forces' luggage around the battlefield. Okay, it's big, and it follows you wherever you go. And we spent about $45 million, I think, on the prototype in 10 years. 10 years, $45 million on a prototype. And here's the problem. Any ex-soldiers in this room? Yeah? This thing sounds like a lawnmower. It can't go everywhere a human can go. And if it breaks down and you're you're in Iran, good-looking parts. The truth is, is that a real mule would be cheaper and more effective. But we're stuck sinking money into a robotic ass. This up here is a DARPA thing. It looks like Call of Duty, a famous, you know, Xbox, whatever (coughs) game. Same concept. You're a soldier. You wear a visor, and on this visor it has... You know, it has the whole battlefield laid out for you. It has, just like a video game, friend, foe, collaborative targeting, communications, all these things, which is really cool. Here's the issue even if this does take place, we don't need this. We already have combat overmatch at a tactical level. We need strategic overmatch, because that's where wars are won or lost. You've heard the adage, of course, another adage, that you can win every battle yet and lose the war. That's because war is more than just battles. Wars are on politics. We get the arm, well, but not the politics. We don't need any more tactical technologies. We need strategic ones. Or my favorite is the F-35. Now this is a fire plane, and um, this costs the U.S. taxpayers this program 1.5 trillion dollars. Trillion that is more than Russia's GDP on this fighter airplane. Now the last time there was a strategic dogfight was probably the Korean War. So one, do we need more fighter airplanes? The second is we just fought two long wars, arguably we're still fighting them. Does anybody know how many combat missions the F-45 racked up? Five. Isn't it five? Zero. Zero. being a little sensitive to this, I think the Department of Defense sent them out to Afghanistan in last, like October to do combat missions, but if the enemy can't fight back, it's really not a combat mission. I'm an old infantry guy, so that's how I look at it. And, and as an old infantry paratrooper too, the way I look at this is like, if it, you know that dog don't hunt, the the worth of any weapon is its utility, yet we're still buying more of these. It's a definition of insanity. So that's war as we imagine let me Let me share with you war in reality. War in reality. Elections. Remember, war at the strategic level is armed politics. It is armed politics. So when military victories translate into political ones and vice versa, the strategic logic behind election tampering, it's not just, you know, the entire IC says, yeah, the, the Russians tried to tamper with our elections, tried to tamper with the Brexit, Close elections. The only question is, was it, irreli- was it trifling or was, did it swing the election? That we don't know. That we do not know. But the logic here is who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the arm that wields it, right? Or how about this? That's a bomber, a Russian bomber, conventional weapon of war, being used in an unconventional way. Now, the old now Russia or the Soviet Union... Their dream has always been to disunite Europe, right? Break up NATO, break up the EU, disunite Europe. Old rules of war where firepower was king, the war of fits and the utility force in Germany, what they would do was they would use munitions. They would have these huge military exercises on the border of east and west Germany, like Zapad 81. 150,000 Soviet troops <coughs> all lined up to invade you know, NATO, and the Soviets would just say, cool it, Brussels, it's just a war game. Just a war game. And of course, NATO doesn't know if it's a war game or if it's a feint, And this would cause lots of friction. That's old school. New school is that when Russia wants to break apart, you know, NATO, they take bombers and they carpet bomb civilian communities in Syria and they weaponize refugees, because what happens next is those refugees, a tidal wave of refugees lands on the shores of the EU, and then you have the Brexit. Then you have the rise of right-wing parties that want to break apart from the EU. The Soviets would dream for such strategic outcomes as this, new rules of war. Or Hollywood. When was the last time anybody saw a movie with China as the bad guy in Hollywood? Anybody? No. They bought Hollywood. Well, much of it. They green light everything. Next time you see a movie, you know they have all the production companies before the main title shows up? Look how many are in Mandarin. They're also building a Hollywood of their own in China to eventually, hopefully, eclipse ours someday. Hopefully, if one of you. If war is getting sneakier, and war is... Becoming epistemological, meaning that determining lies from truth determines winners and losers. Controlling the narrative of conflict, controlling narrative at large becomes an instrument of national power. They just bought one of the biggest megaphones in the world. Legally. Legal. So war has moved on. And we must move on too. Okay, now I'm doing this mostly for Aaron, because he likes to stir things up, alright? So this is spitballing here. Okay, this is this is we're going to look at China and Russia. What can we do in China to get them out of the South China Sea? What can we do in Russia to get them out of the Middle East? Okay, Russia, as you know, is the first expeditionary mission to the Middle East <laughs> since the Cold War, was just recently in Syria. So, I just wanted this is this is not like I'm advocating a policy. I like, thought this all through. This is just this is a. A, a thinking exercise, it's a, it's a, what do you call it, Um experiment. thought exp- experiment, it's like a thought experiment, okay? So no commitment, and this may be on live, but this is not me suggesting we should do this, I'm a thought experiment, right? So currently, old rules of war, not exhaustive, what we're doing right now, China's in the South China Sea, uh, they take over islands that others say that are theirs, we, we complain diplomatically, which they ignore, we send in carrier groups and we learn that the doesn't work in the new rules of war like it used to. And we invoke international law, again, which they ignore. We're doing some other things too, but this is not working. I think everybody agrees that this is not working. How about this? If we want to get China out of the South China Sea, let's think about fighting the new rules of war. Let's covertly support the Uyghur insurgency. That'll get their mind off South China Sea. Let's manufacture distrust. So we all think democracies are vulnerable to the new way of war. We are, they meddle with our elections, they can influence who our leaders are, they do all sorts of things. But also (coughs) autocracies are equally vulnerable but in different ways. Autocracies concentrate power at the elite and centralize it. It's a hub and spokes model. What we need to do is find ways to manufacture distrust within that, that hub because the autocrat is surrounded by really ambitious young (coughs) lieutenant mini autocrats who want his job or her job. Can we be like Iago and create distrust so that the autocrat purges his ranks for us? I know it's unethical, right? War is terrible. Um, One Belt, One Road. One Belt, One Road is more than just an economic expansion. It's also a national security issue. Asked Sri Lanka, they just got Tony Soprano out of their biggest port. Right? One belt, one road. Let's use lawfare to disrupt one, one, uh, one belt, one road initiative. We need to master narrative. And there's a lot of reasons, and a lot of you have looked at this, why we are terrible at strategic narrative. We invented Hollywood, we invented Madison Avenue, but we can't, we seem to get outcommunicated by a guy in a cave, as uh, Bob Gates said about Bin Laden. Let's find ways to hone, and the book has ideas about how to, this, how to hone um, our strategic influence campaign. So externally, we can broadcast that China is an imperial power to the, you know, sort of the so-called developing world. And domestically, in China, broadcast that the corrupt elites are getting one over on you. And lastly, this is, this is controversial, is let's deny student visas to some Chinese kids. Hear me out. We have the very best universities in the world. Everybody wants to come study here, including the sons and daughters of the corrupt elite in the the hub, the autocratic circle. Let's deny those kids, not all Chinese kids, just the sons and daughters of corrupt elite. You don't get to study in United America. Good luck going to Hanoi University. Enjoy that. Okay? And the reason is, is you get them <coughs> angry so that they carry your water back to mommy and daddy and say, stop repressing those Uyghurs and stop doing your games and stop trying to see, I want to go to Harvard, <coughs> right? I want to go to Stanford. Um, so finding ways, <coughs> indirect ways, the indirect approach, Sun Tzu-like approach to, to find leverage, all right? We can continue this. I'm not saying we should do any or all of this,
2: yep. How do you feel about issuing indictments against the daughters of senior Huawei owners who themselves are senior executives of Huawei?
1: I think it's been done before. But yes, I, uh, I think uh, it's a good question, right? I mean, let, let's um, China's playing hardball with us, with, with gloves, with velvet gloves on. Why are we so... Now, there are some times I give this talk, they're like, well, this is awful. And yes, this, this whole book brackets war ethics, an important topic. But I look at war ethics the same way like Clausewitz or Sun Tzu is. It's like you, you bracket that topic. You assume that a legitimate authority said let's wage war. Now we have to do it as efficiently as possible to, to minimize tragedy. Um, so but also let's not forget that we've done this before. Think of the Cold War. We've done this before. Okay, Russia. <coughs> How do we get Russia out of the Middle East? Well, we're going to do the same thing that we're doing with China our sanctions are, are can, can be somewhat effective. That's the one exception I'd say is our sanctions. And those are the things that we, we have done. I don't think they're very effective. I've, I've talked to people like, well, you don't know our or 50 things that we're doing. I'm like, yeah, but it's not. Russia gets more bellicose each year. So whatever you're doing doesn't seem to be that effective to me, right, so at the strategic level. Maybe the tactical level you're doing great things, but I don't see it. So how about, let's try some different things. One of the most potent weapons in the arsenal is ridicule, okay? Ridicule is like fire. It can go both ways, so it's a dark art. But Putin rides around half naked on bears. Why can't we do something with that, right? Also, how do we manufacture distrust in the Putin camp? It's an autocracy. Let's, he, the Kremlin's very fearful of color revolution. Let's engineer a few. Um, Let's support states that are on the border of Russia that don't like Russia. Get Russia concerned about its own internal domestic security, and they will voluntarily pull their troops out of Syria and put them on those border hot zones. Again, we talk about uh, narrative, and then little green men, or so also like proxies and mercenaries when you, when you privatize war, it changes warfare. It blends market strategies with military ones, mm-hmm. in ways that our four stars cannot comprehend. Think of Klaus Fitz meets Adam Smith, right? That's, that's what private warfare strategies look like. We've forgotten how to do this. Machiavelli did not, that's what his words looked like. Let's use market strategies to, 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 to mitigate that. Let's buy out the Wagner Group. And the Wagner Group, think about like Blackwater, or executive outcomes, better yet, the senior crew of Wagner Group is probably all Russian, ex-GRU, ex spetsnaz but the rank and file probably come from all over the Russian-speaking world and may be susceptible to bribing. Same with proxy militias, bribe them out. Uh, little Green Men, Putin says they're not there, so will he miss them if we kill them all? I know, it sounds awful, right? But is it war? Also, they have a petro economy. Are there ways that we can crash their economy, not permanently, but you know, at a convenient time for us? You know, I know there's no lever in the White House to you know raise economy up or down, but we have some tools to to, to, to jerk it a little bit. So these are old rules versus new rules. Old, and we can talk about this in Q and A again. It's a thought experiment. I'm not committing to these rules, just to get you thinking. So. What does victory look like? Victory's an infinite game. There's no USS Missouri moment here. There's no uh, Waterloo of, of po- you know, that's conventional war. Wars here endure and persist, just like the Peloponnesian War, the 100 Years War, the 30 Years War. They endure, they have high points and low points, and it's relative. Some, it's like Pepsi and Coca-Cola. You're not gonna, Pepsi's not gonna destroy Coca-Cola, usually, have better quarters or worse quarters. That's what victory looks like here. So in sum, we must learn how to win in this new global environment called durable disorder. I lay out 10 strategic principles, ideas, call them rules. Rules one through four are things that we have to stop doing. And rules five through 10 are things we should start thinking about doing. Now to the traditional warrior, this will make some of their heads explode. So It's not war. It's not, you know, if you don't fight that way, it's dishonorable. But the truth is, we've fought this way before, think of the Cold War. Our adversaries are fighting this way now. If you wanna look at what's going on right now, look what China, Russia, Iran are doing. Israel's responded to this. They, after the 2006 war, they had to think about what, what went wrong in 2006. In 2015, they came out with a new strategy. And they have this one, which is which people should read, and they have this one idea called the campaign between the wars, which looks kind of like this, all right? So adversaries and allies alike are, are adapting to the new global environment and, and how strategic lo- logic works in it. We have to catch up because if we don't, usually a lot of blood is required before a victorious nation changes its way of war. <coughs> now, with that, I'll have to turn over to Q&A. Talk about this or anything else. Thank you very much.
3: <clears throat> oh, sorry. It seems yeah. like, well, a lot of good things here as an Afghan vet myself. One of your biggest issues is going to be you're looking at moving resources from the expensive, high tech, high profit world to low tech, special ops, um, coin, et cetera, et cetera how do you deal with the politics internally on this?
1: That's a good question. So, well, first of all, I don't, um, I don't advocate a coin approach. Um, rule number four, which somebody's gonna ask me a question on it, is hearts and minds do not matter. My point was yeah. on coin per se, okay. Okay. but low intensity conflict, oh, yeah, new, new thinking. Okay, so um, that's a good question. And if I had a magic wand to fix Congress, I would not use it on this. I would, you know. Um, and people, you know, Eisenhower talks about the military-industrial complex, and you look at, you know, the current Secretary of interim Secretary of Defense, and, you know, even the Department of Defense doesn't want all the things that are being, it's being asked to buy. And that, and I talk about this in the book to some extent, like, the, the you know, business interests and political <coughs> interests have been the, the double helix of our country's DNA since the founding of the republic. Teddy Roosevelt talks about this. Eisenhower talks about it. You look at the, the late 19th century and the presidents there working for the you know our American oligarchs. It is a huge issue. Um, how do we reorient? I don't know. I think what I'm trying to do with this book. I wrote this book. It's it's an excessively easy-to-read book. It's not like an academic jargon or prose or wonky book. It's to start a national debate about this. And I wrote it to, to be read outside the Beltway. And beyond starting asking the basic questions, I have no program to sort of, um, you know, how do we disentangle Lockheed Martin from from, from Congress? Um, that's a bigger discussion about you know civil affairs and stuff like that. And I think we need to have a discussion, frankly, about civil affairs, um, and this is part of it. But I don't have a this this that's a separate book. Like how do we how do we move Congress? How do we Reorient um, priorities within certain institutions. Here. So, yeah. is the concept of
2: strategy as we think about it, the ends, ways, and means, is that dead as well?
1: I don't think so. The I mean, ends, ways, and means is really not strategy, it's just a, it's a framework to think yeah, for planning. Uh, as much as I dislike ends, ways, and means, I'm, it's hard, what are you going to replace them with that's practical? It's an elegant and simple way to, to think about things. The problem we have is that we produce operational and tactical figures. How do we produce strategic figures? The book also discusses what I call how do you create strategic artists, right? And I think that some I have some ideas that may be crazy, but I think liberal arts is a way to think about it. Because at the strategic level of war, all the problems are complex, ambiguous, and we call wicked problems. Liberal arts is a good way to think about ambiguity. When we read about Do- you read Dovsievsky, you're not just reading it to figure out like what 19th century Russian society was like. You're reading really it to think through ambiguity. Yet, yeah, and we also wait until an officer is 15 to 20 years in before they get a strategic education at the World College. Why are we waiting so long? And why will it be through in the military can think strategically? So i I suggest that I wish we could start teaching strategy at the academies. At, and I wish we had a really robust security studies in American academia. We do not. We have some fine individuals. We have some programs that, that do some things, but we don't really. You know, war's a dirty word in academia. And I think, I, you know, it's another, if I had a magic wand, I would fix. But we need to produce strategists, and they may not come from where we think they come from. When I look at, you know, a great strategist, though, I think of like George Marshall. You know, he's a great strategist. Yes, sir.
0: I, I kind of see where you're coming from in regards to the new rules of war. But at the same time, if we adopt the new rules of war, wouldn't our enemies like China and Russia then revert back to the <coughs> old wars? And if, like you say, like, with the you know military and things like that, it being uh, you know um, being utilized, you know, for what it what it is, would it, if we don't have that, wouldn't that kind of also put us a step? Behind. So why do you think
1: that if we took this up, Russia and China would so like go back to the old rules? Of the well, world? wouldn't they be able to, de- to
0: determine that at that point? Why? I mean, because if they're already on, if they're already going this in this route, right, and then we take a similar route, so yeah. now we're employing the same kind of rules and strategies and resources <coughs> <and they're> <coughs> But if w- when they notice that, then they could then. Like, easily assemble a conventional army that goes back to the old rules, and then it, wouldn't that kind of throw us off, or...?
1: Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that, first of all, I'm not saying we should do away with our conventional forces, okay? I just think we don't need to invest in our trillion dollars in them. Meanwhile, we're, we're getting our strategic bucks handed to us by other means. We need to be more savvy to that. So, like, like technology, right? <laughs> Aircraft carriers. Cost 13 billion a copy now before you add aircraft to sailors. So it's like 15 billion, 16 billion, I don't really know. We're buying two more. Why? They're not deterring Russia or China. We know that for a fact. Why? Now we look at a weapon that does work Special Operations Forces. We know it works because SOCOM and SOF are overdeployed all the place all the time. That's how you know a weapon's being used, because it's effective, right? Because soft is inherently new rules of war. You know what Socom's budget is? It's ten billion dollars. One ship costs way more than all Socom. So that's what I'm questioning. Okay, I'm not saying let's scrap. We don't need you no, know, no more carriers. We 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 can put our whole navy into the yard and scrap. I'm not saying that. But I'm looking at what do we need? What are we not? What are the opportunity costs of buying? <laughs> You know, 26 billion dollars of the carriers um, that we could be doing other things with. So that's what I'm. That's the conversation I want to. Start. <coughs> and at the end of the conversation, we might just decide yeah, we need more aircraft carriers. But I think right now we're just doing it's like rote memory rather than strategic thinking. This, sorry. Uh, so my name
2: is Edward. Um, I'm, I'm second year student here. Uh, so the slides like before on um, this that um, it seems that you know. Uh, you kind of support, you know, that, um, we, you know, just like prevent the, the corrupted officials of Chinese, their case, you know, to come here to study. I believe like most of people also here agree with that, I agree with that, but there's a problem. I guess like most people here also heard about the scandal, uh, happened to the university of the Southern California and that means actually in another way, you know, a lot of the uh, universities, you know, our countries are really flourished by the primary university, like the school YouTube, you know, the Harvard Brown, and, and these schools, like, you know they have to rely on the personal donations. That's just like, uh, that's just a norm. I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. And, you know, there are actually more and more Chinese officials and the, you know, the big companies in their, in their heads, you know, the CEOs, they are already, you know, donate a lot of money to these schools, I mean, call, I mean what we can do with that, because you know, some schools they definitely open a door for the people who don't have you know, a lot of money, like from China, even from the corrupt officials, and they can use like you know a justified, justifiable cost, you know, said, oh, you know, we support a research lab, you know, at Harvard, so.
1: So, uh, are you asking how we deal with corruption in American higher education? Is that mm-hmm. the question?
2: Yeah, I think actually that's the. Uh, I'm not seeing that's sort a of corruption. I'm just saying you know, I think that's you know. In terms, you know, to prevent, you know, people to come here, I think we need a, a, you know, maybe like a better, um, you know, a better system, you know, to improve our higher education.
1: Well, I don't argue with that. I, I do think again when I'm saying limit the visas, I'm talking about just like the the fifty kids who are sons and daughters of the circle of elite, not all Chinese students. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, and if a company comes and we know there's corruption, and I mean, I went to Brown and Harvard, and you see kids there, you're like, there's no way that you got to, you know, how to explain yourself, right? And there's all sorts of reasons that that kid is there uh, that may not, you know, maybe because their father swept a check or they're a legacy tap or there's all sorts of reasons. Um, we know that. Uh, and I would love to clean that up. That's not what this book is. Um, uh, but I'm just, uh, you know. So if we have a, a Chinese company saying we just gave you a fifty million dollar building, and now we want you to take this person, does that happen? It Probably does. Um, I think in those cases, the State Department says, "No, sorry, we can't. If this person's on a certain list. We can't issue them a student visa." So it takes it out of the school's hands at that point. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Sir. Yeah. I'd like to draw yeah. you on, on number seven. Yeah.
4: It's somewhat vague. Yeah. Uh, it contains two things. The first is a definition. What do you mean by type? Okay. The second is a prediction. Who and how. Now, question. Maybe just who. That's
1: enough. OK. Yeah, let's take it easier and better. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, OK, so rules starting. OK, so six, seven, and eight are kind of a trio. These, these rules are laid out in a specific reason for a certain, certain order. So, with the rise of mercenaries, and these are now, mercenaries show up with Mi 24 attack hind helicopters, they show up with special operations. They, these are not lone dudes, these are like private militaries that you can rent, big and small. Some are good, some are crappy. It's just like the market for t shirts or anything else, all right? What that means is that lowers the barriers of entry for conflict because now anybody who's the super rich can become superpowers. And that's what Rule 7 means. So, already you have the Fortune 500 which are more powerful than most states in the world. Uh, we have 190-some states in the world. Um, the vast the majority, 79% of them are fragile or failed. When we think about them, we always think about the top 30, which is kind of weird. We should think about the, the bottom 175 or so, 160. Um, you have oligarchs. The richest people, that's the, the top 62 people, richest people in the world, own the, the same amount of wealth as the bottom half of the world. Now that they can have mercenaries to defend their interests, and they do have interests, they will do so. The extractive industry is already starting to hire mercenaries. They are tired of being shaken down by corrupt countries like Nigeria and others for oil. Um, you can have also megachurches in the future. You know, mercenaries are not inherently evil or good; they're just a tool. Um, just say there's ISIS 2, 3.0, and they go into Iraq they start massacring. Christian communities, killing the men, selling the women off to sex slave markets, and the, internation- and the international community is feckless again, or feckless, just leave that. You have megachurches who have like, budgets of 90 million a year. They could hire mercenaries to protect those Christian communities, and they might do that. So new world types of powers, these are, these are uh, non-state actors, who either are armed or they can pay for arms, and they will wage wars. And already, an example of that with rule number eight is that there will be wars without states. Look at Latin America. Now, we look at Latin America and that's just a cops and robber problem, which is severely naive in my mind. Cartels are waging wars <coughs> in Latin America, and states are prizes to be won. So cartels is another example of rule number seven. Warlords in Africa, again, another example of rule number seven. So this is already happening. I think it'll continue to grow as mercenaries grow. Rule six and seven sort of ladder each other up, and that's the fear. Miss
0: Becky. So I have a question. How the concept of durable disorder and these rules created, how much are they tied into the con uh, to the idea that U.S. military, you know, generally a- applies itself to to ethical warfare and these Geneva Convention and these rules, these principles yes. that it has decided we will not cross this line. And if
2: there are sectors that do, they're often brought to trial. Um, situations like
0: that. How do these new rules of war fit into the fact that enemies of the United States? don't hold
1: themselves to that standard while the US does? So, um, good question, and I discussed this in the book. So the laws of armed conflict are also old rules of war. We need to update those too, it's not the book. Laws of armed conflict are obsolete. Nobody, they, they seek to uh, regulate, which may be hubris by the way, seek to regulate conventional interstate war. There's no category in any law of armed conflict, I know for like mercenaries, one of the Geneva Protocols talks about mercenaries briefly, but it's very vague and not very, no, yeah, it's easy to gather. We need to update the laws of our conflict, or we decide that you know international public law um, is pretty useless when it comes to regulating war. Yes sir. Okay.
4: Um, let me try this. Let me try and explain. Number one it says conventional war is dead, and yeah. I agree with that. Okay, does it mean, does it mean uh, the future war is going to be consist of, of nuclear weapon, which is also uh,
1: conventional?
4: It, 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 the answer is probably yes. Yeah. Okay. Nobody is messing with India because they have nuclear power. Nobody is messing with Pakistan because they have what. Okay, so now let's talk about North Korea. I have a problem with that. Because if you don't pay attention to me, if you don't respect me, we're going to have a nuclear weapon. (coughs) No! At the price of human rights abuse. Right. And what you're going to do is do something bad at school, and you're going to respect me. You're going to pay attention to me. You don't ignore me no more. So it's kind of like that. It, it, I have a trouble with that because all you're going to do is do something bad, you know. It's uh, now we're paying attention. So, uh, and also, number two, Japan, for example, <clears throat> one of the experts says they can go nuclear in three months, in South Korea maybe in six months. <clears throat> well, if China messes with Taiwan, we can help Taiwan go nuclear. You, you see, you see sure. what I'm talking about? Sure. So it's, it's it's almost like a nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. It's a it's a future war. You know, it's like. Well, I do talk briefly. I don't know what I'm saying. Well,
1: <laughs> that but. Hey, um, the future war, why do we assume the nuclear taboo will last forever? Somebody's going to do it. And what happens if there's a, a Syrieva moment in Korea or in the Middle East someplace? And unlike you know, World War One happened in four years, it could happen in one day. <coughs> um, this idea of limited nuclear war, how real is that? How fantasy is that? So I don't discuss nuclear weapons per se in here, other than to suggest that we shouldn't assume it's gonna last forever, and that in the future, people might just look at it as big bombs. Also, when it comes to North Korea, they don't <coughs> need a nuclear weapon. They could shell Seoul from the DMZ, just like Stalin ran. Right? They, 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 they could have done that decades ago. So I'm not sure what that, if that says anything, but uh, it's, it's there. It's a good question, nukes. Uh, back here, the burgundy shirt
0: um, how should we be thinking the relationship w- between the private and public sector? I know in the U.S. we have, uh, actually I've done historical research back to World War I era stuff, and, and, it, and the U.S. would um, be much more hands-off with you know, defense manufacturers than Britain who out of wartime necessity Al-Azhar was playing favorites even in, you know, oh, what do we do to, to take advantage of these newly available Turkish oil fields yeah. you know, in, in Basra, now in Iraq? the Ottoman Empire collapsing, um, do we need to start rethinking that, Would we need some sort of uh, at least US-based, you know, semi-public company to give all our industrial espionage secrets to, or do we need to go as far as setting up our own Dutch East India company?
1: <coughs> well, um, Eric yeah. Prince thinks the latter. Yeah, I do actually, not. I, know, um, I was going to make a The Prince joke about Yeah, so, that. Um, gonna, yeah. look, <coughs> I think that uh, we have privatized a lot in our war capabilities, so much so that I don't think we could sustain war without the private sector. And a cunning adversary can use that against us. Unlike, say, autocracies like Russia or China, they own all their industries. Now, you go back 20 years ago, I'm sure some scholars still remember this, that it was all the rage amongst economists and political scientists to say that if you liberalize the economy, (coughs) politics will liberalize as well. But China has shown very clearly that's not true. That um, they, they their, their corporations are not free and independent. They they act as collectors. They take orders from Beijing, whereas we can't crack an iPhone in a CT case in LA, right? So I'm not sure what we do. This gets to your your question about how do we you know fix the laws of the land? How do you fix Congress? How do you, how do you dislodge old interests? <laughs> I will say that there's another thing about this that I'm getting at that if war is getting sneakier, I mean, how do we do these things without losing our democratic soul is one of the questions. If war is getting sneakier, if you look at on this list, those are things that may not sound compatible with democracy. And we learned in the 1970s from church and others that secrets of democracy are not compatible. Now what does it mean that if war is going underground, war is getting more secret, how do we fight that and not lose our democratic soul? I flag that question in this book, with intellectual honesty, I do not provide an answer. That's, again, another book. But that's one that we should concern ourselves with. And it also gets to your idea of public-private partnerships. Yeah. How do We um, We don't want to lose private property as an, as an American ideal. Uh, but we have nationalized it in the past, like in World War II. Right. Right, yes, sir. Thank you. Yep. Um, <clears throat> About 25 25-
3: Nexus points of strategies. Right. So you could look at a strategy of a nation or a corporation or a transnational and you could find those weak points as nexus points. Uh, they rejected that uh, proposal. <laughs> but just in the last year they revived it. They come back to me and ask me if I teach on that. Are you aware of any programs out there where they talk about a war on strategy as opposed to war on nations or war? Well,
1: I like the way you think, because for those who probably, probably some of you already know, this book is, I'm solid in the Sun Tzu camp of right. strategy, and right. not say the closet Jomini camp, which I think is important too, but I, right. I emphasize right. this, and one of the things this book has in the back Mene- of it, sorry? Did Mene- camp? You mean child, or? No, Jomini, Jomini, I'm sorry. General Jomini, uh, 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 from 1840s, okay. um, Swiss. Um so, one of the things I also do in the back of this book is I include the 36 Chinese stratagems, which you know businessmen who go to China and do business know about, but DOD doesn't, right? Um, it's all about deception of warfare. So, uh, I am solidly in your camp on this. I don't know of any programs who are looking at that, um, because you're talking about and his, his Sun Tzu's hierarchy of four strategies, the very first one is attack the enemy strategy, right. which is what I also propose here, and I talk about that in the book. I will I will say this: this this book is getting a lot of it well, it's getting some attention in town. Okay. The places that look obviously Lockheed doesn't like it. Okay, boo hoo. Um, but you know, Socom loves it. Socom loves it, and they are um, and they are thinking about this. That they have to think about this because. You know, the new NDS has come out. They're like, well, what's our role? And that's what they're they're looking at. That's what I'm also encouraging them to look at. Yes. And I think no, right. there's a right. role for that. <laughs> so yeah. 25 years ago. Right. No, 25 years ago, it's, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. China yeah. is
3: pursuing, it's called confine the uh, birds to their nest. And yeah. Go. That's uh-huh. what they do with the islands and stuff. If it's, it's, a, it's always to confine you. And then you don't realize you're surrounded at some. Right, so, and uh, the Russian one I haven't looked at that strongly, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll be teaching a program with them in about eight months, I guess. Yeah. would uh, be. be great. But it's that same thing. It's like you get rid of all the old way. You have to come to a new way, which just happens to be an old way. <laughs> it is. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's right. It's, a, it's and also that.
1: Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yes, behind you, sir. Yeah.
4: So the United States is <laughs> often. Uh, to as a hegemonic power, a presence that can be felt everywhere in the world, whether yeah. it's through our navies, our land bases and over 150 territories. Yeah. Um, so, with your recommendations <coughs> that you present in this book, it's for a dramatic shift in force structure. Yeah. So within the DOD, within the Great Network, yeah. exclude politics for a moment yes. from the conversation. Yes. How would that change the nature of how the United States operates as either a hegemonic, or would it change to being a regional or a partner in regional after? How would you devise that? Well,
1: I, I, I'm less territorially focused with this. I'm thinking about how do we outsmart the enemy and not overpower them? Uh, and getting inside their head and being Sunzu, how do you attack their strategy rather than how do you attack their militaries? Now, I do talk about force structure a little bit. This is not the book. That's different. But I, but some things I, I emphasize are fairly radical. Like why are the top four stars of the army always infantry? Why not have, you know, intelligence? Uh, why, you know, do some other things like that too. And so to, to sort of move a strategic culture that we're a paradigm of, prisoner of as well. Um, so I want to rethink some of the old ways we'll be doing things or produce old ways of thinking. It's back here, and then Chris. Yeah.
0: So, so, what's stopping that? Is it the bureaucracy? Is it the current leadership in the military that doesn't want to see it that way? Like, what is the issue
1: stopping from that change happening? Well, it's a great question. It, 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 some of it depends on some of it's structure, some of it's agency. Depends who's on top. Um, so, we have a new chairman coming in. And I don't really, I've heard rumors, but I don't know where he stands on any of these things. Also, there's always this question it's like, why isn't Congress vote for term limits? Because they vote themselves out. So it's a self interest thing. And I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting there's corruption. But uh, you know, for those, there's this book by Thomas Kuhn called "The Structure of Science." You know, that change comes from outside because the insides it's wired. It's like a Nash equilibrium where it's wired so that it provides a certain result. And to upset that, you've got to come in from the outside and move it. Moving, shifting really the paradigm. That's why we're this book is to try to shift that paradigm, trying to get a conversation going. Uh, but it's a, it's a great question. It's up here with this. Some of you are asking me really hard questions like, how do you fix Congress? That's one of them. Chris? Uh, could you go back to the slide
3: with the red and blue lines about conventional versus
1: unconventional? Under- sure. If I, can, if I can work this uh, left arrow. It's, it's a long left arrow back, though. I will do my best here. I'm very
2: interested in what's included in that low red line.
1: Yeah, so and exclude. Yeah, so this is always a question with data sets that the political scientists love data sets, but don't often look at you know the sausage inside of it. So this comes from the correlates of War. Uh, and you can look at it, but basically it is uh, state versus state, red is the state versus state wars. Um, I don't have the data set, the Excel data in front of me to tell you exactly what they are. Blue is everything else that they track. You know, it's state versus non state, two non state. What they count as war is, um, you can see the, the sourcings on the bottom here. You could, um, what they count, okay, the courts of war is considered one of the gold standards of the, of the data community. I have issues with it. I use this mostly just to, to show that. Unconventional wars. Are, I mean, conventional wars are rare since forty-five. That's the that's the takeaway. Um, but you can go online and you can download their data set, which explains all these things. Um, so the, that's not just American engagements. That's no, that's worldwide. That's yeah. right. It's not American at all. It's all. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not American. No, it's, so it's global. Can you, can you just, uh, <coughs>
3: just one more follow-up. Sure. So, in your opinion, would you put?
1: Down in red as conventional, the two Iraq wars, for example? No, I would not. You Maybe would the not. first one I would, but not the second one. And so, would you also exclude those very big operations, which some would call operations, some small wars like Grenada and
3: Panama? Would you also exclude those?
1: No, so, well, first of all, these are great questions. And so, what they count as war, which is obviously very controversial. Is a thousand combat deaths in a year? Okay, that's what they include as one. Very controversial, and also they count things Chris differently before, during the Cold War versus after the Cold War. They count things very differently. So there's a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of there's selection bias and confirmation bias built into this data set. It's still the best we have, or one of the best we have. I don't like to look at it for fine tuning because I think it's. It's too crass, too blunt an instrument. I think for this purpose it's fine. Um, and then, what do you do about wars that have multiplicity of actors? You know, how do you count that? Like a year or two ago, Double I Double think tank in London came out with their annual conflict survey, and it, you know, the, the number one combat desk last like two years ago was Syria. Number two was Mexico, Mexico, and that flipped out half. A lot of well put that in Mexico, but wow. But uh, but I think a case could be made that if you look, you know, is that criminality or is that war, you know, in, in the narco world? And if you look at it as war, then it's, it's it ranks above Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh back here this is a little bit of black room. Yeah. after understanding the new rules of warfare yeah. a question leads into my mind and it's
4: that how do you analyze the position of Afghanistan trapped Within the rivalry and proxy war between United States and Russia since nineteen seventy nine
1: until date. How do how do I do what with Afghanistan? How do I
4: position of Afghanistan trapped within the proxy war? Yes. Or you call it unconventional war? Yes. Between United States and Russia?
1: Well, yeah, I mean the great game before that, of course, in Asia and there are lots of states that are uh, in this position, and you know, one of the interesting—we don't think we don't teach a course like this often in America. But one interesting course would be strategies for like—I'm uh, trying to find the right word—like you know, not not like third world powers or top, but like in between powers, right? That is, there are certain strategies to be used, and that would be an interesting course for Afghanistan. But there are there are, there are countries that are, you know, the, geopolitics matter, right? You can't escape geopolitics. So I, I I agree with that. I don't know. I don't know how to answer for you. Uh, yes, sir. <coughs> oh, and then the gentleman behind you in the shirt. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So I I was wondering
3: how uh, often in this conversation stability operations and development programming are discussed as ways to uh, <coughs> deal with the problem of ungoverned space, which is where yeah. a lot of those tactics. Sure. Are. And I was wondering how that kind of fits into your. Well, it's a
1: great question. I don't really deal with it. I do talk about. I mean. I've written in the past a lot about human security and looking at security and development as intricately linked and mutually reinforcing, but I also think that the project of nation building has kind of hubris, and we have to be careful about what we think we can impose because one of the questions is, and maybe you're not asking this question about state building, is that are states discovered or they created? We have a lot of ethnocentrism about what we assume states should be and can be. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. Uh, If you look at Somalia, there is governance there. It doesn't look like a state. There is governance. And we should be able to work with uh, things like that. I would like to have a new rules of diplomacy. (laughs) Why does our (coughs) state department only talk to nation states? They're really terrible talking to non-state actors. When we have alliances, why can't we create alliances with large multinational corporations, which are bigger than a lot of states though, in terms of power? So I think we need to update the way we think about diplomacy as well and what we can do in terms of these ungoverned spaces. Is there governance that, that we can work with or is it just, oh, it doesn't have, a, doesn't have a, a flag so it must, must be ungoverned? The gentleman behind you.
4: So first commentary then question. Uh, the commentary side is thank you. Uh, I, I applaud I'm only third of the way through your book thank you i'm very much a fan of what you're uh, reporting uh, and i'm from the military industrial complex so i would be affected by it <laughs> <laughs> if this happened uh, in probably negatively financially but i still as a taxpayer uh, applaud so question uh, if china and russia are doing a better job at the strategy that, that you're putting out that we need to do better at uh, outside of, I'm gonna say, just my own commentary, outside of Israel, who amongst our allies
1: may be doing a better job than, of course, we are. Um, Poland, those who are next to Russia are getting serious about this. Um, those who have been spanked, like Israel, and let's not forget, like, Iran is, I have this idea called Shadow War, which has many names, so you can call it warfare. It's a certain type of warfare, think of the Crimea, Iran is waging a shadow war against Israel in, um, you know, in Syria right now, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to take a side pro or con Israel. I'm just saying like, our, the world is operating this way. I think NATO is stuck in the old world. Um, I think we are stuck in that world. I don't know about Asia, East Asia, uh, but I, but I know like, uh, Poland, the the eastern part of Europe, which is staring down the barrel of Putin is starting to is looking at the Ukraine very closely and trying to learn from it and of course Ro- uh, NATO is thinking about hybrid war but they're i, I they, 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 NATO's also a very large bureaucracy it's hard to turn that bureaucratic ship so uh, usually what has to happen is that there's a lot of a huge catastrophe like a very done and then people start to take it seriously but usually not even then so uh, that's, that's the, that's the, the challenge I'm trying to confront with this book. I'm trying to start a conversation where people start thinking about this. We so don't have to suffer that.
2: I more people listen.
1: Thank you very much. Yes. so do uh, you have time for one more question or do you lose to time to wrap up? Uh, right. Okay. All right, well, thank you. Like I said, this book, uh, The New Rules of War, is meant to try to drive a conversation so we think differently about what war is Thank you very much for your time and I hope you could stay in touch.